Republican members of Congress are postponing vacations to remain on the House floor to talk about energy independence and gas prices. We'll interview one of them. Also, the fine for Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction was thrown out by an appeals court. We'll ask the Parents Television Council what's up with TV decency and get the results of their sex on TV study. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7th. 1941, Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. We're in the midst of the Pelosi shutdown. She's shutting down the people's house. And if we're not careful, her energy policies will shut down the economic engine of America. That's what about 25 Republican members of Congress are talking about on the House floor. The lights are dim, the cameras aren't there, and the microphones aren't even on, but they're still talking about it. That was Congressman Jeb Henserling, Republican of Texas, 5th District. Uh, Probably a lot of you live in that district. He was criticizing House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for not allowing a vote on lifting the ban on offshore oil drilling. As you remember, we reported on this last Friday in the morning, Nancy Pelosi just abruptly adjourned the House of Representatives. She held a vote, and of course, uh, her position won. Everybody left for a five-week vacation, but uh, some Republican members stayed, and some people are calling it a stunt, but it certainly is sending a message. They're talking about their plans to deal with gas prices and with energy independence, uh, domestic drilling, all of these issues. And uh, one uh, governor of the state of Florida, which is one of the states that is definitely at play here in the election and is also a state uh, that has lots of oil offshore, Governor Charlie Christ, uh, Christ used to be against drilling offshore. He's changed his position, and uh, he told CBS's The Early Show there is a need to drill for oil off America's coasts. I think offshore drilling can certainly be part of uh, what we have to do in a comprehensive way in order to solve this problem. And uh, that's Governor Christ again on uh, CBS The Early Show. He said it won't take long for offshore drilling to produce results. I've talked to people in the business who say that within a year and a half, they can have oil coming out of the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. helping people at the pump, reducing this problem. And, uh, you know, they have the technology now uh, to make it lot, a lot more environmentally 
friendly. And uh, if they drill 25 miles out, because of the curvature of the earth, you won't even be able to see the rigs. So there are folks in Florida and in California, some of the citizens worried about gas prices, and uh, they are supporting drilling, even though they used to be against it. Uh, They see that it's just necessary for the economy and for supplies of gas and for national security. Well, later in the program, we are going to discuss what kind of long-term serious market-based plan would be good for the economy and for small business and for American citizens and our pocketbooks. And also uh, for the environment, Andrew Langer of the Institute for Liberty will be joining us. Uh, And also, uh, remember the Janet Jackson wardrobe malfunction at the 2004 Super Bowl? It was a big shock if you were watching with your kids. Uh, Big oops there. And that's what the Third Circuit uh, Court in Philly says. They said that this incident on television was not pervasive. And uh, it did have some shock value, but it was not pervasive. And that CBS does not have to pay the $550,000 fine that the FCC levied against it. We're going to talk about it with the Parents Television Council a little bit later in the program. We're also going to ask them about the fall lineup. Uh, They've got a new study out that uh, really basically measures How much sex is going to be on TV this fall? We'll discuss it with uh, Melissa Henson, Director of Communications at the Parents Television Council. Well, we've been discussing uh, oil, drilling, gas prices, something that Congress should be discussing right now, but only some Republicans are doing so. One of those is with us now, and uh, he is Representative John Carter from the 31st District of Texas, which really stretches from the outskirts of the Metroplex all the way to Round Rock, Texas. And uh, he is the sixth most powerful member of the Republican side of the House. He is the Secretary of the House Republican Conference. Representative Carter, thank you so much for being with me. You're welcome. Nice to be with you. Well, it's great to have you, and we appreciate uh, that there are certain members of the House that are actually taking a stand uh, to deal with rising gas prices. I know that they're down a little bit right now. It may be due to what you're doing down there, though. What do you think? I think it is. Uh, you know, when the president lifted the moratorium on offshore drilling and Anwar and shale oil, uh, that started an instant fall in the market, in the oil market. Uh, it dropped like $18 in a very short period of time, less than a week. Uh, it's continued to move down as the Republican conference is calling on Nancy Pelosi to come back from the five-week paid vacation that, is, that we were sent home on and ask us, ask them to give us a vote up or down on drilling offshore and in Alaska and so forth. Uh, it's falling on deaf ears thus far, but we continue to do so. It's our third day of taking the floor of the House and basically talking to the gallery and the public that are fisting from all over the, the country. Representative John Carter is with me, Texas District 31. Uh, Representative Carter, are you on the floor right now? I can hear something in the background. No, I'm actually in the airport. <laughs> you heading home? I, I flew in last night, got here at 3 o'clock this morning. I've got to go back because I have uh, constituent meetings in my district tomorrow. You know, uh, I really, though, and I think a lot of us appreciate the fact uh, that you guys delayed your vacations, that you've been there working hard on behalf of the people. Can you just tell us a little bit what it was like there? Because I know that you had to talk loud because you didn't have microphones to help yeah, no amplify your voices. The, the uh, Only the security lights are on in the chamber, although there's plenty of light 
to see with, but not the normal amount of light that we have in the chamber. So we have no microphones. The lights are dimmed. Um, they, the C-SPAN is turned off, so there's no TV coverage. They're not allowing any recording devices inside the chamber. So basically we're speaking to the public. And now the public has been quite sizable since we started this. It, it all started sort of uh, almost accidentally on Friday when 10 of us were told that we were not going to be able to give a five-minute speeches that we had signed up for. Actually, there was over 30 of us that came, but 10 of us stuck around and started talking. Because she shut the house there. down? Is this because she shut the house down early in the day? That's right. She had promised to keep it open to five and she shut it down. Well, there was no promise, but everybody anticipated we'd be open to five. But that's normal when you sign up to give a five-minute speech. They generally let you give it. But they cut, it out, cut us off without any speeches, so we just started talking. And there was enough of the public there that before long we were packing the chamber. Representative Carter, I heard uh, today that Nancy Pelosi is now, well, it's not uh, under the table anymore because it's been in the news, but she is allowing her at-risk sort of vulnerable Democrats to uh, vote for and support drilling just to kind of save their bacon uh, in their districts. But, uh, you know, obviously she has no intention of letting something like this pass, does she? Actually, it's very, uh, it's very cynical what she said. She said, if you need to tell people you'll vote for it in order to get reelected, go right ahead, but I'm not going to give you a vote. She's not going to give them the chance to vote for That's it. That's right. That's right. Okay. Representative John Carter is with me. Uh, Representative Carter, listen to this from Barack Obama, because this is what he says about our oil addiction. For the sake of our economy, our security, and the future of our planet, we must end the age of oil in our time. Talk about cynical, uh, Representative Carter. That's really an impossibility, first of all, and uh, cer- certainly a um, sort of a campaign promise for the far left. He's had some other things to say, though, that he will support some drilling. Do you buy that? Well, it's kind of he's come around now that the spotlight has been placed on it by the Republican uh, memberships uh, in the House, membership in the House of Representatives. Uh, he's now realizing that this is getting to be a an issue where the over 70% of the American public favor drilling now. So he's just moving to the, with the polls. Uh, his, his comment about getting away from oil, uh, that is a goal, at least our total dependence on foreign oil. We certainly need to, do need to get away from it. But to take the position we can do it, uh, cold turkey, if you will, is just ridiculous. It, it'll be so devastating to our economy, to our private lives as American citizens to, to try to force people to convert vehicles over to some other form of transportation. Uh, it would just be a earth-shattering change in people's lives. We can, we can program ourselves into this by using common sense and, and using our resources intelligently at all levels, including alternatives. I'm all for that. So is the Republican conference. I want you to address one charge that's being made uh, by Obama and also by the Democrats having to do with uh, the leases that oil companies already have. Here's Barack Obama again. Obama won, Larry. In the short term, as we transition to renewable energy, we can and should increase our domestic production of oil and natural gas. But we should start by telling the oil companies to drill on the 68 million acres they currently have access to but haven't touched. Uh, Representative Carter, what about those uh, leases? Because that is really their main argument. 
if, to be very honest with you, that argument, if I didn't know it was just for political purposes, I would say somebody ought to study how the oil and gas business really works. It, 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 the oil business goes out and leases lots of land in the hopes that when they run their seismographic work on it, they will find oil below it because of studies they've done of the surface. They think there might be something subsurface, but they don't drill unless they see something down there. And so they may, that one of the risks that people forget that the oil companies take is they lease up, they spend billions of dollars leasing up land that turns out that they're not having any oil production. If all land in America had oil production, we wouldn't have a problem finding oil. We could put it in my backyard. But there's no oil down below my backyard. So that's what they're talking about. The area he's talking about has been studied by first the Navy did it for 10 years. Then the, I think it was the Geological Survey did it for 10 years. And now the oil companies have looked at it for about 10 years. They've only thought found a small amount of production, and they've drilled that production. So it's not that they don't want to find oil there. It's not there. But they know it is 75 miles away. So it's really uh, government officials trying to tell oil companies how uh, how to run their businesses, in a well, sense. Well, plus the fact you don't drill where there's not any oil. It costs, in Alaska, the average uh, oil well, or even offshore, you're talking into the hundreds of millions of dollars to drill those oil wells. You don't drill when you when your seismograph tells you we don't see any, any play below, below the surface. You just don't do that. That's that's bad economics. Representative. Bad business. Representative John Carter, uh, Congressman, 31st District. One more question very quickly here before the break. What do you think will happen? I mean, it seems like the public is for drilling. Uh, the leadership in the Democrat Party is not for it. Many Democrats are, uh, you know, getting pressure and probably will get pressure. So what do you think will end up ha- happening either before or after the uh, election on this? Well, of course, we're doing this because we're hoping we can convince Nancy Pelosi to give us an up or down vote. and We'll find out where... The Congress stands. I believe if we're given a, a uh, up or down vote, I believe that we will pass drilling uh, at least offshore and in uh, the shale oil. Uh, but if she doesn't give us a vote, then it's actually going to be a major election issue, both from presidential down to congressional across the across the country. I believe because people are tired of their lives being messed with because of energy and not just gasoline. But when it gets cold, people that have to depend on uh, oil and gas are going to find out their bills have doubled. Representative John Carter, thank you so much for the hard work you're doing. We appreciate uh, your being with us today and giving us a great explanation of all of this. You're welcome. I'm glad you let me call you. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, some common sense. We'll talk more about energy later in the program. But next up, we're going to talk about the 2004 wardrobe malfunction. CBS does not have to pay a fine for it. That's next. Criswell College is proud to present the new Mac at Night program. It's a Master of Arts in Counseling degree obtained by attending evening block classes. There are licensure and non-licensure options depending on your career goals. Mac at Night features some of the best professors in the field of Christian counseling, and all courses are biblically based. Expand your ministry or prepare for a doctorate. Criswell College makes it simple and convenient. All Mac at Night courses are scheduled with the working professional in mind. If you've got a full-time job, a busy lifestyle, or even raising a family, you're perfect for Mac at Night. 
Get your Master of Arts in Counseling at Criswell College with Mac at Night. Call 800-899-0012 or go to criswell.edu. That's 800-899-0012 or criswell.edu. Invest in God's work and yourself through this convenient program through the Criswell College. It's Mac at Night. See criswell.edu. That's criswell.edu. Listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. That's Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake's performance at the 2004 Super Bowl. Of course, that ended with a wardrobe malfunction, as we all know, and it resulted in a $550,000 indecency fine against CBS. This has now been thrown out by a federal appeals court, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia. That music was within seconds of uh, when it actually happened. And with us to discuss this and uh, what needs to be done next is Melissa Henson, and she is Director of Communications and Public Education at the Parents Television Council. Melissa, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. All right, what message does this send that the FCC is unable to find? Uh, I guess their argument was that this was a fleeting image, mm. uh, and uh, we all remember it. Uh, many of us were watching it with our kids. A little embarrassing, uh, but uh, no fine for this. So what, is, what message does it send? Well, I think the, the networks are really pushing for an anything-goes, a Wild West kind of TV environment. Um, They've recently filed uh, with, the, uh, with the Supreme Court a brief stating that they, they think that the entire enforcement regime of the FCC, the entire indecency enforcement regime of the FCC, needs to be reevaluated. Uh, really, what they're looking for is license to broadcast whatever they want, whenever they want, regardless of how many children are in the viewing audience, regardless of how kids are affected by what they're seeing on TV. Um, and as as you know, and as I know, and your listeners, of course, know, um, the broadcasters are using a public resource. The broadcast airwaves don't belong to NBC, ABC, CBS, or any other network. They belong to the American people. And using those broadcast airwaves is a privilege, not a right. Um, and so it's not unreasonable for us to expect them to operate within certain confines of, of uh, decency and um, responsibility. Uh, but that's, of course, not what the networks want. Melissa, we have a proliferation of broadcast outlets now. We've got lots of cable, and on cable, you can pretty much see what you want to. <laughs> but uh, I think there is a special responsibility for the networks to, uh, at least during prime time, and especially during something like the Super Bowl that's watched by families, to have some sort of standards, and that's what we have an FCC for in part, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um you know, the FCC has been around since the earliest days of broadcast, um, and the indecency rules have been around as long, uh, since the 1920s or 1930s. Um, and for, for, for most of this century, or the past century, it was not a problem for broadcasters to operate within those indecency regulations. Um, they were happy to do so because, you know, after all, they're making millions of dollars uh, by having access to this public resource, which is the broadcast airwaves. Um, and it's only recently, I think, that added, that the, the networks have sort of adopted this attitude that, um, 
you know, that they are championing free speech, that they are championing the First Amendment by pushing the envelope, by trying to get away with so much, and it's really nonsense. Um, they, they have an obligation to be responsible with how they use that resource, and it's up to the FCC to make sure they are acting responsibly. All right. Uh, the people don't like this. There were half a million complaints to the FCC after the Janet Jackson wardrobe malfunction. There was a law passed uh, in 2006, and they've upped the fines. It's 325000 per incident mm-hmm. of indecency now. What does this type of a decision, does this sort of take the uh, legs out from under this law? Uh, well, it certainly has the potential to do that, um, although I don't think they, you know, it's, 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 um, the jury is still out. Uh, there's the, this isn't the end of the story. I think you know that the FCC can certainly appeal the second or the third circuit court's decision. Um, that they're going to be looking at the uh, fleeting expletives issue uh, at the Supreme Court later this fall. Um, Congress still has the ability to act uh, to pass laws that will reinforce the FCC's enforcement authority. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's a setback, but it's not, um, it's not the end-all and be-all. It's not the, the end of the story. I noticed there is a bill, and it's been introduced by a Democrat, John Rockefeller, and uh, tell us about that. Yeah, it's the Protecting Children from Indecent Programming Act. Um, and basically what that does is it affirms the, the right of the FCC to enforce broadcast decency laws. Um, and we're hoping people will contact their representatives in the House and Senate in support of this legislation because I think it is important uh, to communicate that message uh, not only to Capitol Hill but uh, to the FCC that we support their enforcement of the broadcast decency laws. Um, and I think it also send a pretty clear message to the broadcasters as well that we, the American people, are taking back control of the broadcast airwaves, that the airwaves don't belong to the networks to do with it as they please that they are beholden to um, serving the public interest, that that is their obligation. We're going to hold, hold them accountable for that. All right. Today, uh, the Parents Television Council, and actually we're so grateful that you're there uh, monitoring what's going on, so we don't have to. <laughs> uh, I know it must be a lot of fun, but um, you have released a study. I think you do this every year. It's a sex on TV study. What have you found? Well, this is a, a fairly unique study for us. Um, typically, when we have done studies in the past on the treatment of sexual content on TV, uh, it's, it's a sort of a purely quantitative analysis, you know, so we can say, um, you know, that broadcast TV averages 10.5 instances of sexual content per hour, and that's really all we're looking at. Uh, but this time we decided to take it a little bit further and examine how... Um, sex is treated on television with respect to the institution of marriage. And what we found is that overwhelmingly marriage and marriage relationships are portrayed negatively on broadcast TV. By contrast, adulterous relationships or non-marital sexual relationships are overwhelmingly given a very positive treatment. Um, and more than that, they're, they're given a, a very disproportionate treatment. Um, it's it's dealt with a lot more frequently on broadcast TV. So, for example, references, verbal references to sex outside of the context of marriage outnumbered references to sex in marriage by a three-to-one ratio, and depictions of couples uh, who were not married in bed together outnumbered depictions of married couples in bed together by a four-to-one ratio. Wow, gone are the days of Ozzy and Harriet and June and Ward in their twin beds. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but But more than that, 
Um, you know, it's not merely the fact that, that TV today has this sort of anti-marriage bias. It's that they are also far more willing to explore um, behaviors that in, in past generations would have been considered taboo or off-limits for, for TV. They're much more willing to explore those stories than they are to explore uh, happy married relationships on TV. All right, some of the popular shows, and um, I've got to say, I'm talking about things that I've read about. I'm not really familiar with this because I'm probably one of the uh, lightest TV watchers around and really only watch news. Uh, but a Gossip Girl I have heard about, mm-hmm. and I've got, a, I've got a 20-year-old daughter, and I've just heard the buzz about this, this show. So just tell us about this one because it's very popular. Yeah, it's um, set in, a, in an elite um, Manhattan private school. Um, so it's focused on a, a, a small group of very wealthy girls, uh, girls and boys, I guess I should say. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it, it often depicts teenagers engaging in behaviors that, uh, well, I certainly hope are not representative of, of the behaviors that most American teens are engaging in. They've showed these kids using drugs, drinking alcohol, sneaking in nightclubs, uh, going to strip clubs, engaging in um, high-risk, very promiscuous sexual activities. Uh, but they present this as very normal and very mainstream, uh, which I think communicates a very dangerous message to young TV viewers who watch the show. This is the CW Network. Um, Melissa uh, Henson is with me. And Melissa, how much do you think, and you probably have studies of this too, it does influence their behavior? Yeah, um, it's interesting that uh, we have a huge body of research on how kids are uh, affected by exposure to media violence. They've examined that particular subject for more than 50 years, and there are over a 1,000 studies. Um, it's been a lot more difficult to get research on how kids are affected by exposure to sexual content in the media. Uh, part of it has to do with um, parents' reluctance to allow their kids to participate in those kinds of studies. And part of it, too, is the fact that, really, it's only been, and, until recently, um, kids didn't have ready access to uh, media content that had high levels of sexual content, but it's become so pervasive on TV in recent years that it's been possible for them to do these studies. And the studies that have been done have been pretty consistent and pretty conclusive that kids who are exposed to high levels of sexual content in the media um, become active, sexually active earlier in life than they otherwise would. Uh, they progress to more advanced uh, sexual behaviors. Um, they're more likely to have multiple sexual partners. Uh, they're in a higher risk categories for STDs, uh, unplanned pregnancies, and so on. So I think there are very dire consequences uh, for allowing kids to see this kind of material on TV. Well, on TV, uh, you get the glamour of it, but you don't necessarily see the consequences that you would in real life. Melissa, tell us, if people want to see this study or find out more about the Parents Television Council, what you think about certain programs, how can they do so? Uh, You can uh, visit us on the web at www.parentstv.org www.parentstv.org. Uh, one more show. I cannot believe this one. I've heard about it other places, but you guys looked at uh, Swingtown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, and that name, you can only imagine. It's about swingers. It's an entire show. Uh, CBS is based uh, 
it on this subject. Uh, a lot of fun. I don't think I'll be watching that one either. Mm-hmm. Melissa Caldwell Henson, you got married recently. Thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the work of Parents Television Council. Well, ladies and gentlemen, next up, we are going to talk about what might be a common sense energy plan. Everybody's talking gas prices, energy independence, and all of that, and all this drama on the House floor. Uh, There are folks with some plans out there that combine drilling with research into alternative energy, and we're going to talk about one of them with Andrew Langer from the Institute for Liberty. Stay with us for that. Listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. First part of my plan is a thousand dollar emergency energy rebate that would go out to families this fall to cover rising prices, not only in gas but also in home fuel. That's Barack Obama speaking in St. Petersburg, Florida. And where would this thousand dollar rebate come from? He said under his plan the oil industry would be paying for it. I am proposing that we pay for the rebate by taxing the windfall oil profits of companies like ExxonMobil. It's classic redistribution theory. Uh, Barack Obama, the candidate of change, is really basically just an old liberal when he talks about these things. With us to discuss a plan for energy independence and uh, for possibly reducing gas prices is Andrew Langer. He is president of the Institute for Liberty. The Institute for Liberty is a nonprofit small business advocacy organization. And uh, Andrew Langer, thank you so much for joining me. It's a real pleasure to be on with you today. What do you think of Barack Obama's uh, plan to rebate $1,000 to consumers and tax the oil companies to do so? Amazing, one of the amazing things that always happens when you uh, tax a, a business entity is that invariably they're going to pass along the, the tax that they pay back on to you. So it's, it's one of these things where, as I like to say, anytime you are trying to introduce sort of a new force in the marketplace, it always has these ancillary consequences. So what Barack Obama will do ultimately will raise prices and, and increase costs for families. And then, of course, there is the issue of who actually gets the rebate. Uh, is it going to be, you know, folks who drive the least? Is it going to be folks who use mass transit generally? Or is it going to be, you know, the, the working Americans, uh, many of whom are considered uh, uh, upper middle or, or upper class uh, to folks like Barack Obama? Well, so Andrew, this won't work. Uh, I have an idea that uh, one of the p- groups of people that will not get it, uh, he sort of has this artificial income line of $250,000. Uh, if you make more than that, you don't you you get taxed more. Everybody else might get some sort of a rebate. So he's moving money from those who make over two hundred fifty thousand dollars. And since you represent small businesses, um, I think that that's the group. It really does hurt everyone because a lot of business owners, small business owners, make maybe right around that in their personal income. This is how we've really come into this energy issue. Now I, I spent six years working for the nation's largest. Small Business Association. And, you know, I came to the conclusion uh, during that time that small business owners really have the worst of all possible worlds. Uh, Unlike big businesses, and, you know, when I talk about small businesses, I'm talking about businesses with fewer than 20 employees. 90% of businesses out there have fewer than 20 employees. Uh, So we're talking about the smallest of the small. And, And, you know, these businesses, they can't negotiate 
with energy companies and gas companies the way the big boys can for reduced rates. And unlike individuals, they can't readily change their behavior. You and I, if we want to reduce our driving, we can sacrifice a few uh, uh, ancillary trips. We can you know, turn up or down the air conditioner depending on the weather. We can put on a sweater, etc. But if you're a small business owner, obviously you can't change your behavior. You get an order for something, you have to run the machinery, machinery to fill that order, and you've got to you know, pay the gas on the delivery to deliver those orders out to folks. So they really are the hardest hit because they can't change what they're doing. They just have to suck it up. And in this age of economic instability, they can't readily pass along their increased costs to their customers. And ultimately it comes out of their bottom line, ultimately it comes out of their ability to hire and retain employees. So it really does have some serious uh, devastating economic impacts down the road. But this seems to be the group uh, that the Obama campaign and really the Democrats are focusing on uh, focusing on right now. It's almost like they're the enemy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that, that's why it's astounding to me that I, we've, I've had a couple of my small business, you know, colleagues, uh, you know, within other organizations come out and endorse Obama. And I just, I can't understand it because, you know, when you, when you look at what Obama's promising small businesses, there's, there's no there there. Uh, and this is what it comes down to for me when I talk to folks, and I'm, and I'm always talking to people on the other side about these things, trying to figure out where they're coming from. I'm someone who believes very firmly in dialogue. And so, you know, I'll get approached on the street by, by uh, Obama supporters, or I'll meet folks at, at, at parties who are our small business owners, who, are, who I know are Obama supporters, and I ask them, what issues are moving you? Don't you quite understand what's going to happen here? Because it's, it's not just energy. It, it's really, it's everything. It's energy, it's taxes, it's the regulatory state, which is a lot of what uh, the Institute for Liberty focuses on. I mean, we've got a trillion-dollar regulatory state, and I'm not making that number up. I mean, that's a, a solid number. And, and that translates into, for these small businesses that I'm talking about, $7,700 per employee per year in regulatory costs for the federal government, you know, the, the, the federal regulations that they have to comply with. And that number is just going to go up under an Obama administration. Heck, that number has gone up under a George W. Bush administration, someone who was supposed to be anti-regulatory. And that number went up 10 percent uh, you know, while he was president. My guest is Andrew Langer. He's president of the Institute for Liberty. And Andrew, uh, right now, of course, the Republicans are making a big splash, staying uh, in Washington, D.C., some of them on the floor. Uh, of the House to make a point that there was no vote on energy. If there were a vote on energy, and if you could cobble together some sort of a, a good plan that would not only uh, begin to solve the crisis, get us energy independent, uh, reduce gas prices eventually, and uh, even be environmentally friendly, um, Boone Pickens has put out a plan there that he thinks would do that. What is that plan, and what do you think of it? Well, it, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting plan to say the least. And I, and I have to say that the reason why the Institute for Liberty is on board with Boone's plan is because he's the first person, the first real energy leader, to step up there and say, you know something, I may not have all the answers, but I've got an answer, and I'm going to move forward with it. And the plan's this. Uh, Boone made his money on oil. He's shifting away from oil, though I personally think that oil needs to be a part of this. He's focusing on two aspects. He's focusing on natural gas, and he's focusing on wind power. And what he wants to do is he wants to build a string of wind farms up the wind corridor in the, north, in, in the, uh, in the Midwest, you know, where a lot of your listeners are, obviously. Um, you know, and then he wants to shift away uh, electric power generation away from natural gas 
and use it towards fuel trans- to transportation costs, you know, fuel transportation costs. And he doesn't want to force individuals into buying natural gas vehicles. That's their choice to do it. What he wants to do is he wants to get the government to start doing more with natural gas with their vehicles. And as they're purchasing fleet vehicles, these are more environmentally friendly. They go just as far. And it's far less expensive to run them on natural gas. So as the fleets retire at the federal government, they replace them with, with natural gas vehicles. There are something on the order of 8 million natural gas cars worldwide, and we only have a few hundred thousand of them in the United States. And he wants to change that. And changing the, the, the federal government is the largest buyer of gasoline in the country. And you take them off of the gasoline dole, and it frees up a heck of a lot more gasoline for the rest of us. Um, and so that's the essence of the plan. It's to make 20% of our electricity generated from wind, and it's to shift us away from natural gas for electric generation towards fuel to sort of ease that supply consideration on that end. And it's a fairly elegant, straightforward plan. I mean, obviously there are intricacies which we can discuss, but that's where it goes to. It's, it, to me, it, it's the best of both possible worlds. It does some very audacious things. You've got an individual stepping up and, and saying, I want to do this. And then at the same time, it doesn't involve a uh, government mandating individual behavior, which is all right. Everybody's best. saying, as whatever I advocate is as part of a comprehensive plan, and this sounds like uh, Boone Pickens is trying to be fairly comprehensive with the wind component. Now, the reason we're not using a lot of the alternative sources right now is because they're not cost effective. Do you think, Andrew, that uh, because oil prices have risen and they, they've gone down a little bit in recent days, but they're up there, uh, does this make some of these uh, possibly in the next few years on a par cost-wise well, with think, the oil that we're using? I think it's, it's a couple of different things. I think, number one, we have in this nation created an anti-energy policy at the federal level. I mean, we are doing, we have done everything within our power to hobble our economy energy-wise by creating regula- regulations that, in effect, discourage the investment in these uh, alternative uh, technologies like wind, um, you know, the Endangered Species Act uh, out in California, you know, really stopped a lot of uh, uh, potential wind projects from, from going forward. Uh, you have, uh, you know, you have uh, uh, dams being torn down in the West to protect fish. So, I mean, you know, you have these good, clean technologies that you have the federal government enacting policies to, uh, you know, deny their So really the environmental lobby is not just anti-oil. They're anti-energy, anti-growth. Oh, that's exactly. They are, they are, they are anti-individual choice and individual prosperity. Prosperity is anathema to the environmental movement. Mm. Uh, even though it is economic prosperity that allows us to make the choices to protect our environment. Without economic prosperity, you can't make those choices. So they really don't want gas prices to drop. Oh, no, no, and that's, the, that's just it. I mean, when you, when, you hear, when you hear folks like Richard Branson on CNN last night debating Boone Pickens on his plan and, and saying he supports certain aspects of Boone's plan, but saying, I like the fact that oil prices are high because people will drive less. See, that's the dastardly thing. That's, to me, when, when you know, folks talk about uh, alternative fuels uh, uh, saving you know, families millions of, of gallons, I, I, that just doesn't hold water with me. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm someone who's dealt with the environmental movement for, very, for, for many years now. And so, it's, it, to me, it's, it's incredibly disingenuous uh, on that end. But, but the point is, you know, the technologies are there, at least on the wind side, to get us to where we need to go in terms of generating megawattage, I was talking to an energy expert yesterday, a uh, retired gentleman who worked on uh, on both nuclear and coal-fired power plants uh, 
here in the East Coast. And he said you can now, you know, with a wind farm, with wind farms on the scale that Boone's proposing, uh, you can you can generate that 20 percent of electric power that we need. Well, we do have a lot of wind in the state of Texas. Andrew Langer, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. You've got a lot of good information here. Keep us posted on your thoughts on this issue of energy, and we will have you back. Happy to do it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it sounds like there are a lot of folks who do not want gas prices to go down. So what if it goes up to $10? The Family Research Council is asking, how would you pay for $10 gas? What would you give up if gas becomes $10 a gallon and you've got to fill your car? Why don't you give us a call and let us know? What would you give up if gas hits 10 bucks a gallon? 800-881-9270. Stay tuned for more of Jerry Johnson Live. I've got a full-time job and a family, and I'm also getting a master's degree at Criswell College. The new Mac at Night program offers evening block courses for a Master of Arts in Counseling degree. It's so convenient and fits my busy lifestyle as a mom and a professional. Mac at Night offers licensure and non-licensure programs so you can gain ministry knowledge and even prepare for a doctorate. Mac at Night professors are at the top of the Christian counseling field. And Criswell College is partnered with a number of ministries, so you'll get experience and great contacts. My friends and family are so excited to see me back in school with the Mac at Night program at Criswell College. A Master of Arts in Counseling has never been so convenient. Come on, join me for Mac at Night. For more details, call 800-899-0012 or visit criswell.edu. Invest in God's kingdom and in yourself through the Chriswell College. See us on the web at chriswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. You could argue that no one's ever ready to be president. I mean, I certainly learned a lot about the job in the first year. You could you could argue that even if you've been vice president for eight years, that no one can ever be fully ready for the pressures of the office. I'll bet the Obama campaign is pretty mad at Bill Clinton for that answer. It was during an ABC News interview, and he was asked if Barack Obama is ready to be president. And, you know, I'm sure they're asking, why couldn't he just say yes? But no, he had to talk about, uh, well, no one's really ready. And you kind of wonder if the Clintons are still a little bit reserved about Barack Obama. Uh, He also uh, was asked during that interview if uh, he alienated some black supporters of Hillary Clinton during the campaign by things he said about Barack Obama. Here's his response to that. But I am not a racist. I never made a racist comment and I didn't attack him personally. Race is a big issue, and as a matter of fact, uh, we are going to talk about that on Thursday on Jerry Johnson Live with an expert, how race is playing into this campaign. And uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about the Olympics taking place in China, some of the issues that uh, they are having to face there. I found it very interesting that uh, they are actually going to shoot dust into the clouds to try to control the weather. And tomorrow, uh, we will have an expert on weather, uh, Larry Solomon, Uh, will join us. He's written a book about global warming, but he also has written recently about China's attempts to control the weather and their uh, technocratic attempt to control the environment through all kinds of mechanisms. They've been rationing auto uh, use and diverting rivers, shutting down factories in Beijing and in surrounding areas. So that ought to be very interesting tomorrow. Well, we're asking the question right now, how would you pay for $10 a gallon gas? What would you give up? Uh, Would you give up your vacation? 
Uh, would you turn the uh, thermostat up and uh, sort of uh, have a colder house in the winter and a warmer house in the summer? Would you quit buying uh, extras, gifts for people, clothes? What would you do to pay for that $10 a gallon gas? Because I know that it would hit everybody pretty hard. Let's go to Marta in Terrell. Marta, thanks for calling in. Hi, Penna. I think that the the bottom line is that even $4 a gallon is really strapped most of the lower to middle class people. Um, I know a lot of my friends are just on bare necessities right now at $4 a gallon. So I think at $10, you're looking at them either selling their houses, moving to a smaller apartment, something. There's not really a lot they can do away with at this point. Wow. Uh, Yeah, selling your house, that is a huge step to have to take just to pay for energy. And, you know, in a sense here in Texas, our energy bills go up normally in the summer because it's so hot. And I'm sure none of us are looking forward to seeing it this month after these 100-degree temperatures. But to heat and cool these homes, some of us might think about downsizing. Thanks for your call, Marta. We appreciate it. Mitchell now is in uh, Louisville. Mitchell, what would you do, what would you give up to pay for $10 a gallon gas? Well, I think I definitely agree with the last caller's sentiments about the middle and lower class already having to give up a lot of things. Honestly, I think at $10 a gallon, I would have to give up my present job. Because you have to drive so far? Yeah, because I I drive from Louisville to Fort Worth every day. And that's already, you know, a tank a week. That would be like $200 a week. I don't think it so would So you think be you'd be able to get a job closer to home? Um, I would have to, even if I had to take a little less money because, you know, to offset what I would spend in gas each week. Wow. Mitchell, thank you so much. We're talking about some huge dislocations within our economy when people are saying they have to quit their jobs because they can't afford to drive to work. I will say I drive a long way to work, and uh, it w- it's already affecting me, <laughs> uh, the uh, the tolls and uh, and the gas prices. It gets a little expensive. I love my job, but, uh, boy, it does hit you in the pocketbook. Let's go to Roger and Keller. Roger, what would you give up if uh, gas hits $10 a gallon? Well, I'd probably have to uh, telecommute to work. But I, I had a comment about the Pickens plan. Yeah, and might. you can do that. Some people can't. But, yeah. you, but you can you can telecommute? You think that would work for you? Well, um, I'd have to talk to my employers, of course, but, yeah, I think it would work. It's either a big uh, raise or telecommute, right? Yeah. All right, so what's your comment know. about the Pickens plan? Well, uh, first I'd like to say that, you know, I think you should build as many wind turbines as you can, but, you know, I work in the industry, and, and to tell people that they can have 20% of electricity from wind is completely disingenuous. You work in the oil industry? Uh, or the wind yeah. industry. Okay. I'm actually in the construction area that I work for companies like ExxonMobil. I think we're losing Roger, but Roger, are you there? Yeah, I'm there. Okay. Well, let's try it. We'll try it. You're breaking up. Let's try to hear what you have to say. Sorry. You'd have to build 390,000 megawatts of wind farms to make 20% of electricity consumption in the United States. Now, put that in perspective. There's only 15,000 megawatts of wind installed today. So you're talking about something that's 25 times the current capacity. And I've, I've, like I said, I've looked at this, and you'd have to install 400 wind turbines every day for 12 years to get there. And there's just not that kind of ability or capability to install that kind of capacity. 
So I think we need to be building wind turbines, but we got to be doing everything else. There's no easy solution here. You have to build nuclear plants. You're going to have to drill offshore to meet our energy demands. Roger, one of our railroad commissioners wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend talking about Texas and how, in a sense, we're doing what is going to need to be done in other states. I mean, we've been drilling. Uh, but what about these plans now? Even uh, even some Democrats are saying, because of their constituencies, that uh, we have got to drill even in those um, coastal states that have had an environmental lobby that's been in control. What is your thought for a plan that would make some sense but still be environmentally okay? Well, first of all, I think that uh, there's been a long, huge improvement in technology to where you can drill environmentally responsible, in an environmentally responsible way and get access to uh, all of the offshore oil uh, there's been a study done by the National Petroleum Council called Hard Truths that shows there's about 40 billion barrels of oil in the continental United States off the shores of California, Florida, other locations that are readily accessible if the federal government would let us drill. Of course, that's what they're talking about in the halls of Congress. Roger, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. We've got a bit of an expert here listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, uh, the Bible talks about what we do uh, with our resources, and certainly we're to till the ground and uh, we're to raise our food from uh, what he gave us, and God just had a wonderful plan for us to be able to do that. Uh, But he did uh, make man... To be above the beasts and above the things that grow, Uh, he allowed Adam to name the beasts, uh, but he did create man in his own image. It says in Genesis 1, in the image of God, he created him. And he gave us dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And he also gave us a brain to figure out how to deal with this. And that's what we're attempting to do right now. We've got to be part of the solution. Join us tomorrow. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.